and we're live. Kia ora everybody, thanks for listening and tuning in today to um, Māori Land Monday's podcast. I've got a special guest tonight and um, it is what we're recording at night and you'll be listening to us on the Monday. Uh, my special guest is my papa, Te Taru White. And I'm, I'm going to let him introduce himself and all that jazz, but it's a real privilege to have him. Um, he has a lot of substance, history and first-hand experience and many things to do with whenua Māori in Aotearoa. And um, I'm going to get him in a few times over the next, well, however long in the future, to share his experiences with us so we can have some authentic um, stories straight from the straight from the person himself um as you know the theme is maori land or whenua maori and anything to do with it whether it's my journey and my struggles um with my own whenua maori or our family's whenua maori whether it's uh services or policies and things that affect uh whenua maori and Obviously, with my dad, you're going to hear what he has to share tonight. And we're going to start off with, I think I've given it the right title, um, the phys Physical Envelope Days. But before I do so, I'm going to hand over to Dad, to Taru. Hi, Dad. Hi, Bob. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So as you know, Dad, this is going to be recorded. Um, it's recording now live to YouTube, but that's obviously going to save in the background and then um we're also going to put this on spotify how do you feel about that oh look forward to it you know something to That's say good. about some of the life experiences yeah yeah well as i mentioned the other night dad um one of the motivations for doing this is you know jeremiah uh thinks highly of you and he it's actually really lovely because having outsiders you know uh in-laws I've come to realize that myself, David, and Narui Mata have, and you know this, we've always, we've all, you've always been dad to us. Dad, dad, mm. our dad. And you've always done dad stuff with us. And ever since we were children, we've already always related to you as dad. I think that's a credit to you because that means you've been a parent. Um, not just the third party that we've kind of watched him live his career. We've had no interest in your career. And I mean that, you don't take that badly, I did. No, 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 not at all, Bob. It's, it's actually a compliment. It's because we've, had, we've been the worst kids ever when you think about it because we've had no interest in these awesome things that you've done throughout your life while you were parenting us. <laughs> and I think that's the point, is you were parenting us. And so we have always known people like, did you know your dad did this? And I'll be like, no, well, kind of, but he was taking me to swimming or we were doing something at school together. We weren't really worried about burdened with what you were doing, but it was huge stuff. So mm. first of all, Dad, credit to you. I apologize that I haven't always known the details, but it was Jeremiah that said, you do realize that you should be getting your dad to speak on that podcast day. He's got some stories that he's told me about because he will sit there and actually listen um and he said and you might want to record them for the future well how do you feel about that dad what i've just said no that's right but my concentration was really on involving you guys in sports activities and and your education and it wasn't really about what i was doing i was simply earning a living uh, gaining my experiences in my life in my working life 
but um, you know, you, 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 David and Naroi Mata weren't really involved in my work. And that was appropriate, really. It just allowed me the freedom to get on with what I had to do and you and my family to get on with, with life and learning the, the skill sets that you have learned to date. And you look at you now, look at your brother and, you know, and, and, um, and you're living your lives. So, and that's good. And so I, I have an opportunity to share my life now with you guys, my working life. And uh, yeah, it's, got, it's varied. You know, I've got a, a string of experience from my start as an engineering geologist, HR manager in hospitals, right through to tribal organizations and entities. And, and even now working in semi-retirement on boards and uh, on a range of boards, you know, and they come from my experiences in life and the skills I've got. And I've enjoyed um, the opportunity to make change where I could uh, for the better and um, hopefully add value um, to, you know, our society now and hopefully for our mukupunas to come. So, you know, yeah. Dead. Where I'm at. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I'm Honestly. really pleased that you fellas, you, you guys weren't really involved in my work and I didn't need to have you involved. And I just come home and, you know, my dad, I'm your dad and um, I'll take you to swimming. I'll help you with your schooling, uh, those sorts of things. And, um, you know, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been a nice, nice balance. Brother. Thank you, Dad. That's awesome, honestly. So um, it's, I think, like you said, it's appropriate because like now as we have our own families, and I am turning 40 this week. Yeah. So it's kind of appropriate now. And I'm grateful, though, that we've, we're have we able to do this in time. Um, you know, nothing worse than never, never stopping to find out these stories. So uh, how we'll go with this, Dad, is it's fairly organic. Um, myself and Dad haven't actually planned anything because Dad tends to know everything so well to the minute detail that he doesn't need to plan. So how we're going to do this, Dad, is I'll just um, give you the floor and maybe I'll prompt you every now and then with some questions. Um, and if you can just keep in mind, perhaps, that um, this kind of stuff goes public, as in it goes to Spotify. And even though I keep my podcast on the download, because I prefer that only a few people who are really interested will listen, there it is, it could go viral sometimes things do and so where there is a place where there is somebody's name because we haven't asked permission even though it was factual and it was true where you can do you reckon you could just use the their role name or something like that you know I, the, I their title yeah yeah just rather than yeah. their name just because we haven't asked for permission and yeah there might be some decisions they made at that time that they don't want to admit to <laughs> yeah yeah. All right, Dad. So I was wondering if you could just take a few minutes just to give us a quick background on your your um, your career. Maybe just a couple minutes there. Just start because we'll find out more about you. Um, and then to tell us what fiscal envelope means, because even I'm a bit yeah. kuware. Okay, Dad. Up well, it's you. really good. To it's really good, Bob. That for the first time, probably in our lifetime, that you'll you're sitting there listening to what your papa did, <laughs> you know, has, has worked on, you know, and some of the detail behind that. So it's, it's a nice time to share. Um, you know, well, I, I started out as um, my working life as an engineering technician on the Pungarero Power Scheme. Then I went to university, came out and worked as an engineering geologist for Ministry of Works back in the day. I worked on tunnels, dams and so on, 
on engineering aspects. Ended my engineering geology days in the coal mines of Huntley. Um, four years I worked in there and I loved every moment of it. Uh, working for the first time with a lot of our Maori miners, working underground, you know, in some ways facing the same dangers, but the same community spirit of our people. And they were intrigued. Here's this Maori boy, here's the mining geologist, which was pretty unique at the time. But one day I was sitting in the coal mine, just listening, um, just turning off my light, sitting amongst the coal and hearing all the crackling sounds. And I would analyze it as a scientist, you know, from the, the stresses moving here and there. Then I thought, how would Maori think about this? Because I wasn't strong in my Maori side at that point. And I said, ah, you know, it's probably Mother Earth, Papa Tuanuka groaning because she's had a, got a cut in her stomach and her puku. And it's actually shifting the pain and to make it more digestible. And I sort of started thinking about that. And I said, yeah, that's how people would have thought. They didn't think about stresses and everything. Else. They thought about Mother Earth, Papa Tuanuka and the hurt we were creating in her and the balance she had. From that moment on, I had that epiphany that I need to follow that further. I need to follow my other side of my thinking, that matauranga side of my thinking that I don't know about. I'm going to explore that and find out what it is to be Māori. So I actually left the mines. Um, I left it in a good time because the government were actually um, corporatizing everything in 1987. They corporatized state coal, you know, so they corporatized it, made it a corporate organization. They offered me, I was one of the first to be offered my job back and I said, no, thank you, I'm off. I've had enough now, I need to go and explore that other side of me. So when I left, I set up a redundancy unit in, in Huntley um, at, uh, at uh, Wahima, Wahimarai. And we I worked with the Timmy, Timmy Maipis and the Maipis at that time, actually getting miners, redundant miners into jobs. Spent six months doing that and I enjoyed that too. Got them houses, got them jobs. And then I left and I did the same thing in Tokoroa, find uh, getting redundancy opportunities for um, foresters in, in Tokoroa. And then I got offered a job in Māori Affairs, firstly as a senior um, community officer in Rotorua, and then as an assistant director in Rotorua for Māori Affairs. And then I really started mobilising as a millennial at that time in my 30s, mid-30s, looking at establishing um, Māori um, um, entities in, in, in regards to the government's desire to devolve Māori Affairs to Māori which they never did in the end. Anyway, they established Tupuni Kōkiri, and I became one of the inaugural directors of Tupuni Kōkiri in 1992 in Rotorua. I took over that Rotorua office. Uh, a month, uh, nine months later, I was brought down to Wellington to head all the regional offices to take over as a general manager, and that was interesting, because if I look at North, and I'm just going to say this because these were really lovely people, people will know, um, you know, they were people who were engaged with their communities. Actually, I won't mention their names, as you'll see people will know who they are, um, but, uh, but they were wonderful people to work with, all engaged and doing the best they could for their people, engaging with our people, making sure they were connected to the policies that would impact upon our people. And so uh, we had that job, a joyous job it was as well, and I won't say any more other than to say that half a dozen of those people become very, very prominent politicians in the government <laughs> over time. And, uh, and so, uh, but anyway, getting back to that point of the fiscal envelope, you know, I became the general manager of the Pune Kōkiri in 1993. At that time, treaty settlement processes were in vogue. The Sea Lords deal, first of all, giving Māori charge of significant amounts of quota in 1992, which then led to the government's thinking about uh, treaty policies and how they could settle policies forever and a day. 
So they came up with a billion dollars. We're going to fund one billion dollars uh, for Maori settlement of treaty claims. And that was going to be full and final settlement. Well, that was a bit of a joke for a start. Nothing was ever going to be full and final. And a one billion dollar offer was seen by Maori as an even bigger joke because even Tainui at that time thought that their claim was worth $10 billion, not $1 billion, to settle all claims. That was a bit laughable. And at the same time, the government were going to spend a billion dollars on two naval frigates. So on one hand, here we are. Can we stop on that one, Dad? I yep. do remember that. I remember that. I remember being, so I must have been 12, eh? 12 or maybe 12 years old. We moved to, and we, I was at 99 to I remember just hearing you speak about, because I remember in Fakama, it was still that time, it was that time where at schools, unless you were at Kurukopapa or a Māori school, you were a minority. And I remember, so Nana Intermediate, I wasn't a minority. We were probably, you know, 30% of the classroom. But once I got to Sacred Heart College, um, Catholic school, I was the only Māori in a class of about 29 or 30. And so, you know, those conversations that go on and social studies about what the current affairs are and everything, it's just embarrassing. Not what was going on was embarrassing, but being the only person where people were just entitled to speak about these issues in a kuare way, um, about these Māoris and everything like that in the class. So I remember that, remember being like, oh, my God, um, Māori are getting billions of dollars and we're, you know, they're talking about us as if we're greedy. And then I came home and heard you say, the government are spending, how much was that on a frigate? $1 billion on two naval frigates. So they were spending $1 billion on two naval frigates and they were giving how much for settlement of our grievances, treaty grievances? $1 billion. So two boats and people. Two boats and people. Got the same amount of people. And one was for the naval integrity of Aotearoa New Zealand, and the other one was supposed to settle all the social grievances and issues of Māori forever and a day. So that, in a sense, right. was a big joke, right? And I remember that. Once you said that, I was able to sit up straight again and be like, hang on, they're going to spend $1 billion on boats, ships, mm -hmm. and they're going to take forever, and the grievances they've done to a, to, to people, to a whole... Um, to Māori people, so forever in the future and for everything from the past was going to receive the same amount of money as these two boats that That's weren't right. actually to go to war. They were just like a tohu way, yeah. a symbol. That's right, to say that we were upgrading our naval our naval fleet <laughs> and by $1 billion upgrading our relationship with Iwi Māori. You know, so that we were as a policy group, as a policy organisation, Puni Kōkiri was then charged with taking that policy out. And even though a number of us had those feelings, we had to steely ourselves to the job that was before us. Take the fiscal envelope out, that $1 billion opportunity out, right? And I was the general manager in charge of that, had to establish the consultation process with all of our regional officers because they were going to be the instruments to take it out and actually steely their back for the, for the tsunami of grievance that was going to come their way because Māori were, were really already building the impetus to really fight this thing hard, right? So what I did before I went out with our team was I did a trial run around the East Cape. A lot of people don't know this, but I took some acetates with the overheads on it and I took it around about oh, about a dozen locations around the East Cape coming back around to uh, around towards the Portiki. 
and um, oh, they fed me well. I mean, they didn't gobble me up because I was delivering this message because I told them what I thought was the truth. I said, here we are. I'm going to trial this with you, fellas. Here it is, billion dollars on the table, two frigates over here versus all your treaty grievances over there. Now, what do you think? Well, what do you think they thought? So I said, we are going now to tell you that, right? You need to be prepared, but I'm sure we're already hearing the noise that our people are prepared for the fight that's going to ensue over this particular policy. So, you know, I told them that would we'll add them through it all, and this is what it meant. And they said, oh, kapai, boy, kapai, you know, please, you came out. So it was an experiment for me to get the feeling and get the tone of how we might actually run this, what we're going to face. And, um, and I, I, uh, I enjoyed that. But what followed was the decision to open up the first fiscal envelope, we, where are we going to do it? And, of course, I put my hand up with the then chief executive who said, Rotorua, Tiarawa. Why Rotorua, Tiarawa? Because I knew the team. I knew the team up there. It was headed by really, really, uh, you know, well-known people in our community. I knew they could do the job. And I knew them, and I knew Tiarawa as well. And I believe that Tiarawa, despite the protests, would not be throwing the chairs and bricks and tayahas at the visitors. They would listen them out. They would look at them, and they would look them in the eyeballs and tell them straight, without really, really getting into anything, you know, dubious around <laughs> just the cups and stuff. So basically, on the day uh, that we uh, we planned the day, and then my my team in Otorua, I got the I got the view back from the chief executive. Hey, your team in Otorua are getting a bit cold feet on this one. They're getting pulled up by everybody on the street, more or less signalling them as being kupapa, you know, traitors to the cause. And they weren't. They were of the Fano over there, and a lot of our Fano just came around them, right? So we sorry. So the chief executive <laughs> sent me up to Rotoru and he said, "You got to go up there, man." Yeah, oh, well, okay, I'll go up to my team and put a steel up the back, you know, just to reinforce it all. So I got there and I said, "Guys, gals, you got to do this, okay? It's our job, you know. And look, stay hard, stay strong. We may not believe in it ourselves in the terms of what it's proffering, but let's put it on the table. It's our job. Come on, we can do it." And they did. Did a magnificent job. I got to, went to go to the airport to brief the ministers when they landed at the airport. Oh, man, it's going to be hot. Oh. And we hopped in the car. We drove through, and there were crowds and crowds of people already gathering and marching. They parted for our cars, went down, the, down into Unumutu, parked it up, and we got welcomed onto the marae, surrounded by this high level of protest, flags flying everywhere. And I believe at that time as well that there were undercover, quite a lot of undercover police in the crowd, you know, because this was hot stuff. They go into their whare, and of course, people followed in, and some of the flag flyers were there, and one of our young men from Tupunik Pokeri had to stand at the door and say, stop, you can't come in with those flags. Then they said, yes, we can. No, you can't. So it was right in the face of our people. And to credit of our staff, they held their own. So the conversations happened. I can tell you, the ministers up in the States, they got, they got it all, throwing it. And then, you know, and I could hear mutterings amongst one or two of them saying, Oh, that's not too bad. And I'm thinking, too bad? Gee, you're lucky. You're lucky. Wait till you get to some of the other areas. You know, so that was the day. And it was, we've laid it on the table. We've done our job now. And it was Doug Graham, who was the minister at the time. And I'm going to minister that, mention that minister because it's in history. And he had the job to take it out and around for another 10 or 11 hui. So after Rotorua and after that experience, we went to the second one, which was in Portuguese. And boy, the same thing there. It was packed. 
And we were sitting up in the front table with Doug Graham, myself, and our chief executive, and Doug Graham is the minister. And he was delivering away there, and the cameras were rolling. And the next minute, the cameras swung around. And we said, where are they going? We looked down the hallway, down the, down the, down the, down the back of the front of the Malai, and there was this fellow standing there with a blanket over his shoulder, a, a aluminium ladder on his shoulders, looking around. Then he just struts his stuff goes down the aisle, walks down towards <laughs> towards the minister's table. And I'm sitting there with the chief executive saying, hey, what's he going to do? Is he going to throw that ladder? Oh, no, no, no. Well, I'll look after the minister. You look after this guy over here and, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll settle, you know, just in case. Well, this comes in and the cameras are rolling. He walks up. There's a deathly silence. We're watching him. He stops in front of the table, opens up his aluminium ladder, looks up at the roof, looks like that, and he goes, climbs up with his blanket, takes it out, drops the blanket, then he gets these pins and go dunk, dunk, up into the roof, and then he lets his blanket drop. It was his dirty old horse blanket with his submission on it. It was a work of art. In fact, it's seen as a work of art so much now that it's hanging <laughs> in the walls of the Office of the Treaty Settlement. And I I'm think you're able to mention his name. Sorry? I can mention his name. It was the one and only Tommy. <laughs> and old Tommy. Can you say that one more time, Dad? Who was Sorry? it? It was Who Tommy was it that famous name, Tamaiti, he protested by just dropping that blanket. He never said a word, had a submission on it, dropped the blanket, carried his, took his, reassembled his, his aluminium uh, ladder and just strutted out the door, well, not even wincing the word. And the cameras were on him. It was absolutely theatrical. And he made huge impact, you know, with saying nothing but doing that. And that blanket has become a symbol now of its time and it hangs in the office of the Treaty Assembly on the wall. And you know now that Tamaiti is quite the famous artist. He paints a lot of these protest stories in canvas now. And what a beautiful art too. But, that, but you know, that, and after that particular week, uh, Doug Graham turned to the chief executive and myself at this time, and he had a conversation. i got another 10 more of these to do. Do you think I should carry on doing this? Or shall I just cancel out? Man, this is getting a bit too hot. And, he, and the, the comment back to him was, Minister, you have to finish the job. You have to finish the job, okay? Do the job, finish it. And from the chief executives in my point of view at that time, it was about very importantly, trying to, in one way, shift our people's minds from grievance into development thinking. You know, we could fight this thing and continue to fight it, and we should, but we should not just cut it out right there and then, because this is had a hell of a lot of meaning to our future opportunities. If we rejected it outright before we even got to the end, we would not know where it would end. We would even not know where to start again with the treaty claims processes. Anyway, long story short, the minister completed those 12, full 12, and he became a knight of the realm as a result of all of that. But interestingly enough, despite the protests and people really rejecting it right around the motu, the government decided to push ahead. And, in, and, and I, I will argue that one of the reasons why they did that is that one of the leading, or the leading treaty um, uh, entity was Tainui. They were already in the process of settling a treaty deal. And they were the first one and followed close on the heels by Ngaitahu. So that actually said, here we here are prepared to settle. So the government rolled on that one out, right? And of course, at that time, Ngaitahu, uh, Tainui said, look, our deal is $10 billion. That's what it's worth in its own. But you know, what we will do on your $150 billion that you've offered us, yeah, and return of lands, yep, and all of these things, let's just suggest to you 
that the $9.9 billion is our investment in the modern state of Aotearoa New Zealand, or words to that effect. Can we sit on that for a moment, Dad? Yeah. Sure. That is a point that Jeremiah, everybody, that's my husband, who is not Māori and wasn't privy to these conversations or this politics growing up, you know, it wasn't in his household like it was ours. He told me, he said, you need to your dad to share that with the world, that this is like, it's not that um, Māori, this iwi, tainui, accepted something because that's what it was worth. It was because, and you're going to explain it further, though, it's actually nobody stopped to realise the magnitude of their gift, of iwi's gift to Aotearoa. They just exactly. see that, oh, what, how much money did you settle for? And it's like it doesn't, what the amount of money that they received and they settled for is nowhere near the value of it. Absolutely. It's simply what they accepted in order to move forward. And then what happens from, so can you just expand on that a little bit more, that dynamic? Yeah, sure. I mean, you have to realise that we once owned all of Aotearoa New Zealand, 66 million acres. Now we own only 5%. And I use that word ownership guardedly because we didn't really have a term for ownership in my view. We passed on to future generations, right? We were caretakers for the next generation. So we lost the bulk of our land. And in losing that bulk of our lands, a lot of it by trick and trickery, you know, we basically, you know, and when, and that's in a way where Tainu, we said, look, we had this. It's worth 10 billion to us. So we are not getting 10 billion, but we'll take 150 million. This is the context of it all. This is what I heard at the time. We'll take $150 million plus the land back and we'll develop our resource and get more over time. We will we will rely upon ourselves to grow ourselves back. But you remember, not only are we going to get an apology from the Queen of England, but you're also going to remember that we give you $9.9 billion of our investment to build the modern state of Aotearoa, New Zealand. So when people say that we, you guys are greedy, come on, give us a break. That's just one tribal entity. You know, you've taken so much from us. But what we're going to do now is going to, we're going to reconcile our space and build back. Now, now Tainu is worth probably close to a billion dollars and more, right? So they built themselves back in dollar terms, in land acquisition terms, and they're seeking their own tangata despite what happened to them. And when you think about the grief, about the apology from the Queen, uh, from the Queen of England, it's interesting to note that that was the first royal assent ever given to a treaty settlement anywhere, right? And in that way, that was in some ways an honour back to Tainui and back to our people that that treaty didn't matter. But actually, we know how England really does feel about the treaty. So, so that's that Tainui one. But hot on the back of that one was Naitahu as well. Naitahu came in behind them for $205 million plus they could go with a shopping basket around the South Island and buy up land at a government rate. And the government was hopeless at running those businesses. So they got all these Blinken businesses for the cheap. They got them for the cheap. They bought forestry estates and everything else. And good on them, right? And now they're worth close to $2 billion, right? And, of course, both of them, and this is a real thing as well, they actually had a relativity clause in their deals, 17%. If it exceeded $1 billion, they'll get 17% of any excess over that amount, right? 
So they had a relatively, so they're raking in a hell of a lot more money because it's now around $2.4 billion with the settlements. From what I understand, the latest numbers are somewhere thereabouts. You can imagine there's another $1.4 billion. So they get a bite of that to relativity, to, to, to equalize their relativities with existing um, deals. So Tainui and Naito went through and after that, bang, and there's now been 73 treaty claims settled. You know, and one of the things that people, uh, that, that the thought that we had originally, that look at this as shifting our people from grievance to development, it shows that our people can do this because we cannot rely on the system to relent and give us what we want. We have to build it back ourselves and have faith that we can do that. And for me, when I witness the stuff on the ground with the treaty settlement claims processes, that's what it does. So this is not in history. People won't write that in history. The historians don't know that stuff. This is on the ground stuff as it happened. And I know it happened because I was on that ground, right? So basically that's, uh, that's you know, it's nice to be able to share um, some of that detail, uh, Bub, uh, with the publics out yeah. there. Some yeah. like, oh, well, actually I was there. I wasn't a policy analyst. I wasn't sitting in my deck chair. I wasn't sitting in a policy office somewhere in head office. I was on the street. Okay. So, uh, and I was hearing too what was going down the grievances, the yelling, the screaming, and the beautiful blanket that Tamaiti displayed has always been etched in my mind. That was a, that was a, a that was a, a, a magnificent theatrical moment, Tamaiti, and I congratulate you, man. Say no more, so, eh? Say, say no more. So, Amazing, Deb. Yeah. So those are the, yeah. Those so the, those are the things. And as I look back, Bub, and um, and listen to the treaty settlements that have been happening, even here in Tiarawa, I remember those days. And had we not finished those twelve hui, we would not be in the same position we are in now. I have no regrets, despite the fact that our people had a lot of regrets at that time. Sure, some of them are still have regrets, but those who have entered that space of finding their own feet. Yeah, we'll make mistakes, but we'll also grow ourselves as well because we can't rely on this system to do it for us. We've got to do it for ourselves. And that's my learned experience anyway uh, during that time. That's massive. I'm actually just speechless because it's kind of at a magnitude that I, don't, I can't have any comments. So um, except to say, Wow. See, I remember all of it. I remember all of this. I remember mm. you talking about it. I remember it being on TV. I remember you speaking about it after after work. I remember going with you to Hui and stuff. And, but it's funny. I don't. I didn't actually connect anything. I didn't until now. It's taken all this time. Well, you know, you know, one of the things that um, as I'm in my 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 Koweke days now. And I start recounting some of these things. And I might be sitting down with a group of people. Then I start talking a little bit about this. And they go, hey? I say, yeah, that's what happened on the ground. You know? And when I look at TPK and how, how people get, even with the foreshore seabed stuff, and I'm not going to go into that, you know, when they gathered at the papa and they marched on the parliament, Puni Kōkiri staff was on the sidelines as we went past them, crying their eyes out because they couldn't join. So that's for another day. We're actually going to do another podcast on that, Dad, together. Yeah. On another day, on an, another one. topic, okay? Yeah, we'll do that one for, say, next week maybe. Yeah? Yeah, because I think that for sure, yeah, that was an interesting one as well. And um, 
Because yeah. you were actually with Te Papa by the time Four Short CB came around. I was down there in Te Papa where they all gathered before they marched on Parliament. And I had the wonderful opportunity of meeting, you know, the leaders up, up, up in our offices to have a discussion about what they wanted us to do for Te Papa to do as part of their starting point, you know. Uh, I won't name who, but uh, not, it's for another day. But even one suggested we go up the flagpole and pull down the Union Jack and replace it with the Tinotanga Tinotanga flag. I said, oh, sorry. So I can't think I can go that far right now. But anyway. There'll be another one. Hey, Dan, I was wondering if you could just expand a little before we wrap it up, but on what your views are of how um, the iwi who took early settlement way back then how even though it was a lot less than the actual value of what they had lost, way less. And what's your view on having taken the money then, but acknowledged that, you know, getting an, an apology, receiving an apology, saying, kei te pai, the balance is gifted, our gift to Aotearoa, but that needs to be recognised. First, My first question is, was that recognised formally? That yes, it's worth say one billion, but we're only giving you a few million, and that the the rest, the balance is, was that recognised? What it, what was your word? Your words? How you explained it? The balance is a gift. Yeah, we got one hundred and fifty million dollars. So if you take that off the ten billion dollars that we believed it's worth, it's sort of the nine point nine billion dollars of that of that deficit is uh, is our investment in the modern state of Aotearoa, New Zealand. Okay. That's our statement, right? Yeah. That was the statement. The, the was recorded is the investment in the modern state of Aotearoa, New Zealand. If that is, not, I'm not sure whether that was recorded or not, but those were the comments that finally uttered when they had their settlement, when they were looking towards their settlement. Because they did. I mean, who wants to take one billion dollars and one hundred and fifty million dollars when you think your deals were ten billion? You have to have a pretty steely view that we can actually build ourselves up again. And boy, have they done that. There'll be objections to that in many respects, you know, for some people. But actually, you know, they um, they when they look back, did they make the right choice? Well, yeah, they did because they're getting more than 150 million now. You know, they're getting a lot more million. Because that was going to be my question, Dad. Hmm. Oh, sorry, a bit of um, echoing there. But that was going to be my question to you was – you know how sometimes, like I find this in when people I'm helping, I'm coaching people in their negotiations for property deals, just to mm. buy a normal house. Sometimes I'm like, man, you need to just take the, the first offers sometimes or make your first offer the best offer or take, accept the first offer because sometimes it may look like it's quite a distance away from what you, the price you want to achieve. However, time is more valuable than sometimes yeah. the dollar. And the earlier you can take money, the faster you can make take action and use that money and turn it into a bigger snowball. You know how sometimes people end up spending more money on the lawyers, on the arguing, and on the missed opportunities in pursuit of a higher dollar. What what's your views on that in respect to accepting the treaty um, settlements earlier? There's no doubt that early movers have an advantage, you know, and um, and they had an advantage of, you know, putting in place a relativity clause, which clawed back any differences that go above one billion dollars. They would get a percentage of that, 
the subsequent deals that were done were more now done on their merit rather than relativity. So you could you could individually negotiate the merit of your claim. You know, so um, so definitely going in first and hard first is 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 um is a pretty good strategy generally when you're going into negotiations and trying to settle settling early before before the other party gets their head around the space and starts thinking more about it in the detail. It's better to go in quick. And when you look at it, it starts going. Go, oh, hang on. And where the other gov, where the other party sort of has time to think. Oh geez, um, yeah. Maybe we that's shouldn't right. offer them as much. That's exactly right. And even when you look at the billion tree program, you know, I've been part and parcel of a model where, and that's another story, I guess, where um, if you get in quick, the government put out a billion dollar policy, a billion dollar billion tree program, and they were actually looking, well, what model are we going to use? If you got them really quickly, you got them before they actually had too much to think about models, and you put your model on the table, and they look at it, they tease it out, and go, oh, it's not bad. And you end up with a very good deal. And I know the deals that I've been involved with, with a couple of very good deals in forestry and the Billion Tree Program. So um, I think that's another one I'm happy to share because, you know, it's about the government. Yeah, let's just get you on on Sundays. Yeah, yeah, well, or whatever. Um, you know, there's a lot of things that, um, yeah, that have been interesting in, in, in life, but in my experiences. So it's nice to be able to share them because I don't normally. You know, you just don't do it. You just work it out and go through and next, next job, next job. But when you think back on it, you can see, you know, um, you can see where the facts and fictions are. And you know, uh, and you do enjoy when you've had on the ground experience in those particular areas versus sitting in some ivory tower, barking orders down the line when you've been on the ground with your people working it out and seeing the benefits and seeing some of the negatives too. Dad, I could keep asking you more and asking you to um, expand, um, but I think it's just really powerful where you've taken this corridor tonight. And um, if it's okay with you, we might just like leave it there because after this, after I end our broadcast, I think we're going to have to schedule in some more days for some more yeah, about to, but, um, yeah. the Te Papa days yeah. and the Fisi, uh, foreshore, um, foreshore days, the, the March. Um, hey, even yeah, the mining days underground, is, underground in the mines was really interesting as well. Where let's do that because let's mines. think about that. That's whenua Māori. Mm, that's exactly right. Exactly right. Let's talk about your mining days. After, um, oh gosh, this is awesome. Yeah. All right, Dad. Well, okay, but um, thank you so much on behalf of everybody who listens, Dad, um, and anybody and everybody who's going to see this little recording. And I thank you, everybody, for who've tuned in, whether you're watching our little recording here with my dad or whether you're going to listen to it um, via Spotify. Um, I hope you'll be looking, you'll come and join us for our next quarter with my dad. I think we'll take it towards. I think I'd like to, even though everybody's probably really excited about hearing about the um, foreshore march and things, I would like to go back to the mining days. Let's go back into who you were, who you were, and what you were doing um, under the or in the Fenua, 
in the 1980s. So your background as a geologist in the mines. Which yeah, that would be interesting because it was, you know, it was full of subsidence, land subsidence. It was going under the Waikato River, all yeah. those sorts of things that people yeah. don't really know. Uh, you know, and when you look at it, the West Mines, it blew up and in, in, in the Pike River is very, very, very topical. And I, I, I knew the, the, you know, a number of the mine managers, um, been down in those mines in the South Island as well, had a view on the Pike yeah. River as well. You know, I mean, I would not have gone back in just as a feeder to my stories there. I would not have gone back in and done what they've done. Um, but never mind, you know, um, you know, we, we, we fought fires in the West Mine. I was in there with my drilling rig, helping them underground for 48 hours to try and put out fires. So next time. Oh, that's a nice teaser. Next time. Next time. Okay. From everybody, Paul Marie from White and White. <laughs> it's a bit of a whitewash. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Dad? You're white. <laughs> <laughs> Rather than being wrong. <laughs> Dad, come on. <laughs> Let's be serious. We haven't got room for black humor. <laughs> <laughs> We're humarity of people, bub. <laughs> very peaceful people. <laughs> anyway, very, very humble people. We shall shop. We shall stop now, bub. Yeah, we'll stop. <laughs> We'll stop that. I forgot to push in. All right. Okay. Paul Marie, we'll see you at the at the next one. Bye. Okay. Bye. -bye.